In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. And I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. This week, Edwin Putz kicks off his leadership of the DUP by accusing the Irish government of wanting to starve Northern Ireland of medicines and food, thanks to the Northern Ireland Protocol. We'll get the reaction from Dublin and we'll examine the charge sheet. And shipping beef from the other side of the world. What kind of free trade agreement will Britain sign with Australia? And what will it mean for the protocol? Talking of free trade agreement, we'll also examine why the Swiss walked away from talks with the EU about a new relationship. And we'll look at the treatment of EU citizens in the UK by border force. And who could resist another look at Dominic Cummings' explosive testimony about Boris Johnson and the handling of the COVID pandemic during the week. We'll get that in due course. Let's get to Edwin Poots first, Tony. Let's hear, first of all, Laura Hogan caught up with him after a rather late and fractious meeting. And here's what he had to say. And we'll hear Leo Varadkar directly off the back of that. I have a Respect for Michal Martin, um, but I have to say that for Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney, who took uh, 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 photographs of blown up border posts to impose upon Northern Ireland people a harshest form of customs and an internal market that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world was quite frankly disgraceful. And they're going to starve Northern Ireland people of medicines, no less, cancer drugs, and other um, materials such as the food that's on our table and I'd say that's a shame on the Irish government that they've done that and that belongs to Fianna Gael under the leadership of Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney so relationships are really really bad with the Irish government as a consequence. We acknowledge that there are some practical difficulties uh, with the protocol and we're happy to work with the Northern Ireland Executive, British Government and European Commission on that Uh, and also we want to talk a bit more about the opportunities presented by the protocol and uh, hopefully we can do that too. I understand politics and I understand uh, that when you've been elected leader of your party uh, one of the first things you have to do is unite your party around your leadership um, so, you know, I, I'm not going to get too concerned or too bothered. From time to time, politicians say these things. Um, I think it's important not to be too phased by them. Um, what I would say is when it comes to the protocol, um, you know, I'm somebody who's a free trader. I believe in free enterprise, multilateralism. Uh, I've never wanted any barriers to trade, uh, north or south, between Britain and Ireland or between Northern Ireland and Britain. The protocol came about because Britain decided to leave uh, the European Union the single market and the customs union and the protocol was put in place uh, because there had to be checks somewhere and we felt it was better to have those checks at one or two ports rather than along nine counties uh, where there is a land border 
uh, and I stand over that decision to protect the country from a hard border. It was the right thing to do in the circumstances. Um, but we always have to be open to uh, suggestions and changes, and if it's possible to come up with uh, solutions um, uh, that don't involve uh, checks on the land border, well then of course we listen to them, but so far I'm not hearing that. And bear in mind, in the protocol there is a democracy clause. Uh, the Northern Ireland Assembly can disapply uh, the protocol but the Northern Ireland Assembly isn't going to do that uh, unless there's a better alternative in place. And I'm not hearing people talk about those alternatives. Tony, to you first, I just want to go to this issue. We we touched on it in quite a bit of detail last week, but it obviously is still floating around in the ether and poisoning relations between Dublin and Belfast. The issue of the cancer drugs and access to medicines by the health service in Northern Ireland. Who has control of it? Is it being interfered with and is there any danger to cancer drugs reaching, as we touched on last week, the eight or ten people who need a particular type of cancer drug at the moment? Well, Colm, the, under the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, Northern Ireland is de facto in the EU single market. So that means if medicines come into Northern Ireland, they essentially have to be approved by the European Medicines Agency because they can then circulate throughout the single market. And it means, in theory, that if you are putting medicines on the market, uh, what you need to have is an authorised holder. And normally that's a, a big pharmaceutical company or retailer or distributor, and they will be responsible for uh, quality control testing, what they call batch testing, to make sure the medicines are safe, uh, to make sure that there, there are no counterfeit me- medicines getting on the market. And again, under the, the EU's falsified medicines directive, those authorised holders have to be located in the single market. Um, now, obviously, before Brexit came along, Northern Ireland got its medicines from the UK, uh, the rest of the UK, as did Ireland and as did Malta and Cyprus because these are the English language markets. So you have pharmaceutical distributors in the UK who were spinning goods out to those countries because they would have English language labels. But now, of course, the UK is out of that whole framework um, and under the protocol, Northern Ireland would, over time, have to make sure that the medicines they use and that the medicines that are placed on the market there are licensed by the European Medicines Agency and that the authorised holder is either in Northern Ireland or in another EU member state. Now, being an authorised holder is expensive. Uh, Smaller operators can't do it. Uh, And so this was seen as a potential problem and both the EU and UK last December agreed a 12-month grace period Uh, uh, during which time there would be, in theory at least, an uh, uninterrupted flow or undisrupted flow of medicines from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Uh, Now, this issue came up because the the UK regulator had uh, authorised a drug for early-onset lung cancer patients called Tagriso, but they didn't authorise it for Northern Ireland uh, and the the UK regulator, which is the MHRA, said that they didn't do that because of the protocol. Uh, The commission came back and said, no, that's not true. The protocol uh, has a grace period. And in any case, the drug was already available in Northern Ireland for other patients. And in any case, again, there is an EU directive which says you can place a drug on the market for compassionate reasons. So 
I don't think anybody has resolved that situation yet. But of course, if you say that the Northern Ireland Protocol is starving Northern Ireland of life-saving cancer drugs, then that's a very powerful political message. And that's what unionism has been doing. Uh, And Edwin Putz again said that last night. Um, Now, this is an issue which both sides are working at intensively at official and technical level. And what uh, I am told is the latest situation is that the, the EU is working on a a long-term solution and it seems that they are going to simply acknowledge that medicines which are licensed in the UK will be fit for purpose for for Northern Ireland in in this context. And the reason they are able to do this politically is that there's nothing in the protocol which uh, undermines the reality that the UK still is responsible for public health in Northern Ireland and is responsible for the NHS in Northern Ireland. And, right. And so ju- ju- just, to, to just, just to be clear about that, they're not saying or they're not saying that there is some form of alignment or equivalence with the UK pharmaceutical industry and the European one. It's just that the UK has responsibility for public health. It's not kind of encroaching on that other principle that's so contentious when it comes to food safety. Exactly. And uh, this point was made to uh, member states officials uh, on Thursday night by the European Commission. Now, they didn't get into detail about what exactly they are planning for for this long-term solution, but it does seem that they will grant a kind of a blanket authorization or a blanket acceptance that goods that are licensed in the UK can then be sold on the market in Northern Ireland so long as they are not then getting into the single market. Now, how they do that, I guess that'll be a question of labelling, but that that will be a tricky technical exercise. But, you know, I think this is one area where they are working very hard and they are, you know, again, trying to find a solution. Um, But it, 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 it certainly, it causes no end of irritation in Dublin and in Brussels when the accusation is levelled at, at the protocol saying that the Irish Sea border is starving patients of life-saving drugs. I mean, that's a fairly potent accusation to make. Um, and the Commission would certainly say, look, there, there's a grace period there um, and we are trying to find a solution that will be a long-term fix uh, on this. Okay. Sean, something else that's in Edwin Poots's inbox. He himself is a farmer. He represents a constituency in which lots of farmers live and by that I mean the wider DUP who have traditionally a lot of rural support and they are greatly concerned about the prospect of a trade deal between the UK and Australia, one of these big post-Brexit all-encompassing trade deals where there would be high amounts of access for Australian goods to the UK market but specifically agricultural goods they fear they're going to be undermined, undercut, and that the market would be flooded with Australian beef. It's also something that would be of concern, of course, to farmers south of the border as well, given that they sell also into the UK market. 
They sure do. I think it's something like half of Irish beef production goes uh, to the uh, UK market. But yeah, Ulster farmers are worried about uh, this trade deal or potential trade deal. Uh, They're probably right to be worried because the UK's own impact assessment, the UK government's own impact assessment of it, says that the worst affected region under such a trade deal would indeed be Northern Ireland because it has a large agriculture sector and wouldn't get the benefits from doing other kinds of trade, uh, particularly with Australia. So whilst the overall trade deal that they're looking at might increase uh, UK GDP by 0.02%, it would be negative for Northern Ireland GDP by about 0.25%. You translate that down to the farm gate and it means less money for farmers. So yes, they uh, are worried about it uh, and are right to be worried about it. Scottish farmers are also worried about it. And of course, that tends to drive the uh, independence debate or play into the independence debate in Scotland. Uh, For the Welsh, they have the uh, issue of lamb. Uh, Lamb farming, they think, will become unproductive and uneconomic in Wales. It's, uh, you know, lamb farming in Wales is what beef farming in Ireland is uh, to the economy there. So really uh, important uh, for them. Why are they so worried about the Australians shipping up stuff from the other side of the planet? Well, you know, apart from the environmental concerns of uh, involved in shipping, there's just the sheer scale of the Australian production. The average farm holding in England is 87 hectares, but it's 4,300 odd hectares in Australia and in fact the biggest of the cattle stations there is 2.4 million hectares and that is slightly bigger than Wales itself so uh, yeah there's a, a lot of concern here about the effects that that trade deal could do but more particularly than the deal with Australia because Australia is you know, in relative terms not uh, a very big uh, economy it's the symbolic importance for Britain because this will be the first post-Brexit deal that they would do. This is not a a rollover deal like all of the other bits of paper that they've been signing uh, over the past two years since uh, formally exiting the EU. This is a brand new one. Uh, uh, So this is the, the, the one that sets the template. So people are watching what kind of template gets set there because the really big players, particularly in agricultural goods, are the USA and Brazil. And Irish listeners to this podcast will probably recall the uh, highly successful, from their point of view, campaign run by the um, uh, Irish Farmers Association against Brazilian beef imports, going over filming the type of standards there. Also looking at the environmental impact of beef farming, uh, where large tracts of the Amazon get cut down to be turned over to cattle farming. Uh, Not sure how those kind of things are going to play out in Britain, particularly now that it's hosting the COP26. But again, Brazil is far down the road in terms of doing a trade deal. The Australia one is quite close by. Uh, You will have that separation in time and space and people mightn't make the linkages. But the people who are trying to make linkages, such as the British National Farmers Union, who are running a lot of opposition to this, getting active with all the various Knights of the Shire and the Tory party to try and slow down or block or ameliorate this one in some kind of way, they are certainly paying attention to those kind of uh, aspects of it. But yeah, this is an important trade deal. The difficulty that the British side find themselves in is that they are trying to get a deal across the line next month hopefully uh, from their point of view before the G7 summit, uh, which is coming up, I think, in the second week of uh, June. Uh, But setting a time deadline like that, a hard deadline, as we've seen from Brexit itself, you can end up with a deal that doesn't necessarily 
uh, suit you and that things you won't have thought about will pop up and bite you later on down the line. And again, that is one of the fears of trying to rush into a trade deal. You start to look desperate if you've set a, a time deadline for it. It'd be a nice add-on for the Australians, but they really don't have to rush at this one. Uh, they can sit back and see what the British offer. And if they make mistakes, well, that's their problem. Uh, and they will no doubt uh, opportunistically pounce where they can. Remember, some of them are still smarting, particularly in the agriculture industry down there, at the loss of British trade that happened when Britain joined the European Union back in 1973. Right. And just before I go back to Tony on this, you you mentioned the lobbying of the Tory party. How's that translating or filtering upwards towards the cabinet table in terms of dividing lines and how this is being discussed at the top level? Well, it certainly has peeled off the agriculture minister, George Eustace, Uh, slightly surprisingly, perhaps, because he's a former member of UKIP uh, and is very gung-ho about being out of the European Union. Michael Gove is another one who's a bit concerned about this uh, deal. Um, Again, he's thinking with his Minister for the Union hat on uh, about its impact, particularly in places like Scotland. So, uh, you know, there is division in the Cabinet, uh, for sure. But Boris Johnson would like a trade deal, a brand new trade deal of the type we've been talking about uh, for all the reasons that he wants it to be able to lay down the markers and set the the templates in place for having a uh, a very free trade oriented trade policy from Britain he thinks and his supporters think that they can get that by striking a deal with Australia because it's of the right size it's culturally similar uh, it's not going to threaten or overwhelm British industry but it would lay down the tram lines for future trade relationships uh, with other countries uh, going into the future beyond the the, the lifetime of of this uh, current administration. Tony, as far as Brussels goes in, in looking at what kind of a deal the UK might cut with Australia, if there were large amounts of access for uh, Australian agricultural products, how hard would that make the arguments around the Northern Ireland Protocol? Or uh, I suppose another way of looking at it, would the European Union feel vindicated in its approach to the Northern Ireland Protocol so far in uh, how it has moved to protect the single market and leakage therein? Yeah, I mean, the the Australian question has a a couple of uh, important knock-on effects in the protocol. I mean, Sean has mentioned Northern Ireland farmers being upset uh, for one. I mean, certainly if... Australian beef came into the UK that that was produced with by, by practices that are prohibited in the European Union, such as you know hor- hormone uh, injected beef or chlorine uh, washed meat as well. Then those products wouldn't be allowed into Northern Ireland for a start because then they would be able to circulate throughout the single market. The other prism with which to look at the Australian deal is that David Frost, the the UK Brexit minister, has made it clear that one reason why the UK doesn't want to sign a veterinary agreement with the EU is because they need to be in control of their sanitary and phytosanitary rules. Otherwise, they couldn't sign a free trade agreement with Australia. And, you know, just talking to people in the, in the industry and, and uh, here and there, I think this is all seen or, or should be seen in the context of David Frost and a number of hardcore Brexiteers wanting to plant a flag of divergence from the EU and or, or certainly not remaining within the EU's regulatory orbit and in this case that regulatory orbit meaning 
food safety standards, animal health standards, SPS standards in general. Uh, and the reason why he's keen on that is because, uh, from what I gather there, across Whitehall, there isn't a huge appetite for diverging from EU regulatory standards. And you look at the Queen's speech, there were just a few areas where the UK was projecting that it might diverge. I think uh, public procurement was one, financial services was another. And I think, th- again, as Sean said, this has now become a, a an iconic issue for Brexiteers, including David Frost, to show that they can strike a free trade agreement with Australia where they are not uh, fettered by by EU standards. But in fact, uh, you know, the, the from from what I gather, the Australians would be quite happy with a free trade agreement that is based on zero tariffs and zero quotas, even if it did mean some restrictions based on food safety rules and animal health rules. And again, it's important to note that Boris Johnson himself has talked about the importance of animal welfare. Uh, they've talked about the importance of climate change. You know, what what is shipping meat from across the planet tell you about your commitment to climate change you know these are issues that are right. you know s- secondary effect political problems for the UK but it seems to be an a, an area of iconic s- significance for people like David Frost and that in turn is holding up this question of whether or not the UK could sign a veterinary agreement with the EU in order to make the protocol a lot easier well, somebody who's not signing a protocol or somebody who's not signing, should I say, an agreement with the European Union this weather is Switzerland, Tony. It was seen in some ways as a model that Britain maybe would have liked to have pursued as it negotiated its exit from the European Union. A series of bilateral deals on different sectors, piece by piece, instead of an overarching agreement. The Swiss had that series of bilateral deals and they, they displayed during the week that they really don't want to sign that overarching agreement. How's that gone down? Yeah, I think there's been, there's been a fair amount of disappointment and even anger in, in Brussels. I mean, just to, 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 to tell people about the background here, Switzerland uh, obviously has never been a member of the EU. They had a referendum in 1992 to join the European Economic Area, which would have been a uh, which, which would have brought them formally into the single market. Um, but the voters rejected that. And since then, and obviously since the early 70s, Switzerland has had a series of bilateral arrangements with the EU, 120 altogether, that give the, the, Swiss, the Swiss you know, very privileged access to the single market. Now we talk about SPS. They have swallowed in whole the EU's SPS rulebook, so they have seamless access into the EU food market and vice versa. But the, 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 since 2018, there have been negotiations with the EU to try and bring all these bilateral arrangements into one overarching framework. And that's been a difficult process. And the Swiss Freedom, Swiss People's Party, uh, who's in government at the, mo- at the moment, a right-wing party who have you know a lot of uh, discomfort about giving the EU or giving Brussels more say over uh, what the Swiss do in, in exchange for giving Swiss Switzerland that long-term seamless access to the single market. They simply pulled out of the negotiations this week and said they wouldn't go any further. Mm. Um, so what but they that, also what that had, means they had is, cover from the left as well, like the trade union movement in Switzerland true, yes, yeah. doesn't want its wage levels undermined either. 
Yes, and there are, there are sensitive questions around freedom of movement and citizenship that would have uh, been in play if this framework agreement had had gone ahead. Now, w- what it means is that most of those bilateral arrangements will stay in place, including the SPS arrangement uh, that we mentioned. But it means that other arrangements will simply wither on the vine and will not be replaced because the EU believes that Switzerland has got privileged access to the single market uh, but are not bound by some of its its obligations in the way that member states have to uh, uh, abide by those obligations and it's, it's simply not a fair situation for Switzerland to have this kind of single market access without signing up to uh, some of its obligations. Again, this is a, an echo of the arguments that we heard during the Brexit negotiations vis-a-vis the UK. Um, but it does push Switzerland you know, away from Europe. Uh, and you could see perhaps that they will have common cause with the UK now in terms of how they orientate themselves away from or, or towards this, the EU as, as, as it suits. Sean, one of the issues there that Tony touched on was the issue of freedom of movement. That's something that the UK wanted to get rid of when they exited the European Union. And the European Union citizens that still remain in Britain is something you've been having a look at for this week's podcast. Yeah, sure. Just a few points on on that uh, issue. I mean, yes, Britain is out uh, of the European Union and does control its own borders and who gets in and who gets to stay in the country. Uh, That was uh, worked out as part of the deal with the European Union and this issue of uh, settled status uh, was uh, established a mechanism whereby EU citizens who are already living in the UK could apply uh, to have a permanent status. Similar schemes have been established in EU countries for British people who are residing there. So the idea on both sides was if you were living in each other's territory before the break, uh, that's fine. You're welcome to stay on your previous terms and conditions. It's been some um, additional data in terms of the British settled status scheme, which they'd originally thought there'd be about three and a half million uh, people applying for. Uh, but it now looks like there's five million have actually applied for the scheme. Uh, they thought in March it could be uh, as many as four million, but now it's five million. And the final deadline uh, is uh, in uh, June. So still a couple of weeks left. And usually you get a bit of uh, a rush of latecomers coming into schemes there. So uh, it seems like there's a lot more EU citizens here in Britain than they thought there were. Uh, they're not sure why, uh, although Jonathan Porter's uh, a university professor here has done a bit of work looking at social security numbers that were issued uh, and found that there were uh, something like six and a half million since the start of the, the, this century. Uh, so he's reckoning that there could be about up to half a million people who are going to end up having effectively illegal status uh, in the uh, UK after June because they're probably not going to be into this uh, scheme in time. So that seems like quite a lot of people uh, who would find themselves on the wrong side of the law by the looks of things. And the law does appear to be getting tighter. Uh, A couple of newspapers, uh, starting with the uh, Italian colleagues here, uh, but now uh, The Guardian have picked up on the story as well, uh, have been coming across cases of EU citizens who get detained at British airports on their way into the country and find themselves being taken away to detention centres, immigrant detention centres, where they're held 
for up to three or four days, their phones are taken away from them, personal uh, effects are taken away from them, uh, and they're held uh, effectively under lock and key uh, before being uh, deported by the British authorities. Um, some unpleasant sort of accounts uh, cropping up there. Uh, there's always also this week a ruling uh, in the uh, Court of Appeal, uh, which is perhaps better news for EU citizens living in this country, uh, because they have uh, three judges there unanimously overturned an earlier High Court decision, uh, which prevented EU citizens getting access to the documentation that are held on them if they lose their right of appeal to stay in this country. Uh, they will now be able to go in and get the records that are held by the Home Office and any other records that are being used uh, to decide their case uh, and decide whether they are going to be booted out of the UK. Uh, they will now at least get to see that. Um, there was a an exception brought in to the data protection legislation here in the UK uh, in the case of uh, immigration cases. Uh, but the lawyers uh, for the EU plaintiffs were making the point that uh, we know for a fact that the Windrush generation, uh, people who came from uh, the West Indies in the 1940s and 50s, uh, they were badly discriminated against on the basis of documentation that was held within the system, which they weren't allowed to, to get access to or had a, a long battle to get access to. Uh, and so they want to prevent uh, similar uh, injustices uh, occurring for EU citizens. So this, uh, again, starting to become once again uh, a live issue or you know, an issue that ought to we ought to keep an eye on just how EU citizens are going to be treated because uh, once we're getting to the point where deadlines are looming, uh, particularly for the settled status scheme, and also then as we start to see a, an increase in travel, which we hopefully will as the uh, COVID crisis hopefully dies down and the vaccinations hopefully get rolled out faster, uh, we should expect to see travel picking up again and whether we're going to see more EU citizens being detained at borders and whether there is then any kind of reciprocity in that because whilst it's been a pretty low profile story so far, you can just imagine what would happen the way the uh, the tabloid press here would react if British citizens were being detained in a similar way uh, when they landed uh, in Spain or Portugal or wherever they go for their holidays. So uh, that's one to watch. Um, also, if we may, I, I should just catch you up on a, a couple of little tradey things that have came come out this week. Uh, one of them in the Marks and Spencer's annual results, noting that they are now spending an extra £30 million on additional Brexit in required compliance measures for their uh, Ireland, Island of Ireland uh, operations. So that's Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland, uh, shipping food and clothes in and out, all the extra paperwork, time, money, etc. That's costing them £30 million a year. Uh, also figures from the ONS, uh, British Statistics Agency, out on uh, Tuesday, showing a drop in exports from Britain to Ireland in the first quarter of the year of 47%. Uh, imports from Ireland into the UK fell by just 4.4%, uh, but this was the biggest percentage drop of any of uh, the UK's major trading partners. Uh, however, as we have spoken on this uh, podcast many times uh, before, there was this stockpiling effect before Christmas. Stockpiles were built up in warehouses in Ireland to try and get them over the hump. So we have to see how this one uh, pans out in future quarters. Also, a big fall in imports from Germany, uh, 30% down there. Again, though, COVID was playing a role here because 
car showrooms weren't open in that New Year sales period. Uh, and also you had this global semiconductor shortage, which has badly hit the car output uh, right across the world. So there were fewer cars being made, particularly the high-end models that uh, tend to get traded uh, at the start of the year. Uh, but also uh, since the start of the pandemic uh, in 2020, second quarter, China has overtaken Germany as the UK's biggest source of imports. Uh, and there I'm not at all surprised because I got my free box of COVID antigen tests from a chemist a couple of weeks ago. Uh, big NHS logos all over it, but there on the side of the box, it says "Made in China." Oh yeah, one more thing. Um, <laughs> it's, no, this is very like Tony Connolly. Connolly. Yeah. This is very. This is one very Tony Connolly type of uh, thing. But uh, apparently, two and a half billion euro worth of eligible UK exports to the EU did not apply for their zero tariff status and had tariffs levied on them. We know there's this t zero tariff, zero quota trade deal with the EU, but what many of us didn't know was that it, to actually get your zero tariff status, you have to apply for it on the customs documentation that you fill in nowadays to send stuff into the European Union. And a lot of people covering about 10% of British goods exports uh, just haven't been doing this, whether they don't know about it or whether it's just too much hassle or too much cost or whatever. But British people, are, British exporters are paying tariffs to the EU when they don't actually have to. Uh, and a lot of it is down to just the sheer complexity of the paperwork involved. Right. There is a Tony Connolly type of thing, Tony. I did not know that, but uh, there you go. I've, I've been I've been categorized m many times. Uh, there you are, have. folks. He admits Anyways. he didn't know it. <laughs> I, d I did hear that, actually. And I suppose that that is a very interesting fact, because that means the EU is two billion pounds better off because where the EU earns its own money that doesn't come from member states is exactly that through tariffs on trade with third countries. So there you go. That's uh, good news for the EU bank balance. Right. Tony, you mentioned earlier on that uh, Boris Johnson is a man concerned with animal welfare. Sean, it's not very good for animals, particularly rats, to put two of them in a sack fighting with one another. But that's what some of the scenes in the House of Commons resembled during the week. And you were keeping an eye on that. Dominic Cummings was up before the COVID committee to call, to give it its, its shorthand. I suppose it, it'd be rude not to play a bit of him. And there is rudeness involved. And so we, we apologise in advance for that. There is rudeness involved, is there? Excellent. Tell Morris said, I've come through here to the Prime Minister's office to tell you all, quote, I think we are absolutely fucked. I think this country is heading for a disaster. I think we're going to kill thousands of people. I was having meeting after meeting with people trying to figure out where are we on the planet. So, so that quote was referring to the, um, the document I mentioned earlier on, the contain, uh, whatever it was, contain, mitigate, delay thing. Mm. That was the document which was officially touted as a plan, but as you can see from it, it's not actually mm. a plan at all. So what I was doing from, um, from round about the 25th, when people were hitting the panic button with me, was I was having meeting after meeting with people around Whitehall on issue after issue, shielding this, that and the other, testing, etc., to try and figure out, okay, who has got a plan around here? Who is actually doing, doing what around here? Um, and there were all sorts of people doing all sorts of great things, but it was also clear that overall, there was not a coherent plan, and in particular, 
that reference on the night of the 13th from Helen McNamara and to and to um, and with Mark Sweeney was particularly about the NHS. It was about this right. mismatch of where is the NHS plan to deal with Lockdown. the numbers. Yeah. There isn't one because the NHS capacity is going to be like is going to be maxed out by a factor of times ten. Mm. Like on the night of the 13th, one of the things that Mark Sweeney was talking about was there's not even a plan to bury all the bodies. Fundamentally, I regarded him as unfit for the job. Tens of thousands of people died who didn't need to die. So, Sean, he's referring at the end there to Boris Johnson when he says he's still referring to the person who isn't fit for office. He refers also to Helen McNamara, the assistant cabinet secretary. They were just some of the people up for the mention, but it was pretty incendiary stuff. I mean, I, I suppose it should be said that the key line out of Dominic Cummings' entire testimony was tens of thousands of people, as we heard at the end, died that didn't need to die. But apart from that, the politically explosive stuff probably grabbed the most attention where you are. Yeah, I mean, obviously the, the, the politics of it are, are really toxic and the fallout there. What was particularly remarkable, there was audible intakes of breath in the committee room when he started laying into the health secretary, Matt Hancock, and there was wondering, you know, where on earth did this one come from? But uh, most unparliamentary language uh, being used there. Uh, and so uh, as a result of that, uh, Matt Hancock is now uh, effectively fighting for his uh, political life over allegations that he had misled the cabinet over the uh, regime that will be in place, a testing regime for people in care homes, where, of course, we know uh, there have been very uh, high casualties. Now, the problem for Dominic Cummings, with all of his testimony there, lashing out at his enemies, praising his friends, praising people who he thought had done a good job, like Patrick Valance, the... the, uh, Chief uh, Scientific Officer, who he says was the one who came up with the idea of going around the civil service and away from the EU model and setting up their own uh, vaccine procurement system. Uh, so he was full of praise for him and, and a few of the uh, data wranglers and misfits and weirdos that he had hired to work for him. But everybody else was getting lashed uh, and battered. Uh, but at the back of most people's minds here was this is... Dominic Cummings in the Parliamentary Committee allegedly spilling the beans on things that were going on, allegedly telling the truth, but hang on, wasn't he the bloke who came up with the big red bus with the slogan on the side, we send £350 million a week to the EU, why don't we use it to fund the NHS instead? Didn't turn out to be true. So his problem is that he is associated with spinning and now he wants people to believe him uh, about what was going on in Downing Street at the time. Maybe he's telling the truth, maybe not. But like the boy who cried wolf, he does have a credibility problem with a lot of people. And a lot of that does stem from Brexit. Tony, any teeing across the water or horrified fascination or, or just relief, perhaps, that the UK wasn't looking quite such a competent contrast to Europe in the midst of a pandemic as it has been over the last few months? Well, I think there was genuine amazement at the nature of the of the assault by Dominic Cummings on on Johnson, the very personalised assault um, for for seven hours. It was just so graphic. Um, but I mean, I, th- I think you know, there, ever since the beginning of the year, there has been a gradual turning away from from British political culture by by Brussels and and by the European Union I think it's it's quite subtle in some ways but it's it's now not quite as critical 
to the relationship as it was before. I remember when Boris Johnson was uh, appointed Prime Minister, leader of the Conservative Party in July of 2019, and everyone, of course, expected it. But when he announced that Dominic Cummings was going to be his special advisor, there were there were audible groans of of worry and angst in Brussels because they knew that he was this somewhat uh, dark figure from Vote Leave who would confirm Boris Johnson in his reckless assault on uh, all of the agreements that had been reached with Theresa May, the whole question of the, the backstop Northern Ireland, the protocol. It was known that Dominic Cummings felt that the whole peace process thing in Ireland the whole question of North-South cooperation, the all-island economy, all the things that people were trying to work on to preserve uh, the, the no hard border, no infrastructure at the border. It was known that Dominic Cummings felt that that was all nonsense and that Britain should not have any obligations in that direction. Um, so, yeah, I guess by by this stage, there may be some uh, schadenfreude about, out there, uh, but... Yeah, it, it didn't have a major impact here. I mean, people were in Brussels this week were transfixed by the, the Belarusian fiasco, the, the grounding of a Ryanair jet, the, the summit uh, in Brussels for, for two days, which covered a lot of that. There's been a big negotiation on cap reform. Uh, so, yeah, it, it didn't have that much cut. So was the UK relationship knocked off the agenda? It was supposed to have been discussed at the on the Monday night dinner, I think. Was it bumped off the agenda by Belarus? No, it wasn't bumped off the agenda, but it was certainly, I think, a much shorter discussion than it would have been. And again, I think that this was all very carefully prepared by diplomats in advance. They did want to send out this clear message that the UK had to abide by the agreements that it had signed, both the withdrawal agreement and the future relationship, the trade and cooperation agreement, and also that the EU had to speak with one voice uh, on the question of defending the single market. I think we talked about this last week, Column, the, the idea that there were other countries now looking at what Britain was getting in terms of access to the single market without having to abide by its obligations. Um, and there was a strong message from leaders that, first of all, they had to maintain the unity that they had maintained during the Brexit negotiations, but also uh, reaffirm this idea that they will not let anything undermine the integrity of, of the single market. Uh, that message was there in the council conclusions uh, on Tuesday, um, but it probably didn't take up as much bandwidth as it would have because of the Belarus affair. Right. Well, seeing as you're talking of meetings and the like, let's look ahead to uh, the coming week. What's coming up on the agenda, if anything, on the Brexit front? Well, in, in Brussels, I mean, the the... The big question now is is when there's going to be a joint committee uh, that will take stock of all this technical work that we've talked about on making the protocol more easily implementable. Of course, the DUP uh, have said it's not implementable, but in the background, all of this technical work is ongoing. There is still a roadmap for the implementation of the protocol. There's no joint document yet between both sides, but that work is ongoing. I'm told that we've heard from various people that there are about 25 outstanding areas of contention around the protocol. And apart from the SPS area, I'm told that there is broad progress on all of those areas, including medicines, as we've discussed, but also things like the movement of pets, steel quotas, um, 
the question of plants, uh, VAT on secondhand cars. All of this work is is ongoing, uh, which indicates to me that despite what the unionism is proclaiming at the moment, the protocol is still very much on track and mm. there's no sign that the UK is going to abandon it, whatever about the kind of rhetoric we've heard a couple of weeks from people like David Frost. All right. Sean, as far as you're concerned, what's going on? By the way, just Tony, seeing as you mentioned there, the VAT on secondhand cars, we did get a, a, a contact via Twitter from a listener who was interested in hearing more on that. So maybe we'd have a, 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 a deeper look at that uh, on an upcoming episode. There's obviously somebody concerned about that. But Sean, anything coming up on your radar? Well, uh, we might find a little more um, about these uh, joint committee uh, meetings. Mara Shevchevich uh, has been booked by the Andrew Marr show for this Sunday morning. The uh, Commission Vice President is in charge of uh, relations with Britain. So that might yield uh, a little bit more information. But hey, it's a Sunday morning talk show, so maybe it won't yield uh, that much information. The other big event to uh, look forward to next week, there's no parliament on here next week. Uh, it's in recess for a week. Uh, or so. Uh, but towards the end of next week, there's a G7 finance ministers meeting that's actually a real meeting of real ministers in a real room at the same time. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see. Uh, one of the things there is taxation policy. Uh, strangely enough, the Eurogroup uh, is being represented by the president of the Eurogroup, uh, Pascal Donoghue, who is the Irish finance minister uh, as well. So uh, certainly that will be something for uh, Irish people to to. Uh, keep a lookout on uh, how the finance ministers deal with the issue uh, of corporation tax uh, reforms. That's expected to be one of the issues uh, on the agenda, of, or uh, more probably as pre-cooked as they can get it for the leaders uh, when they have their meeting on uh, 11th to 13th of June down in Cornwall. All right. Okay. Well, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungai, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.